This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. Everyone, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences radio show that helps thinkers become Christians and Christians become thinkers. But you know what? This show is more than that. We give you the reasons, the science, the facts to have a strong faith, a confident faith, not a blind faith. Um, you don't have to take a leap as a Christian today, nor do you have to bury your head in the sand to say that you're a man of faith or a woman of faith, we will give you the knowledge and the understanding so critical in discerning things in today's world, especially in this high-tech multimedia world, where we are uh, bombarded minute by minute with the so-called truth. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis, and with us today is author Kirk Hastings. Hello, Kirk. Hi, Mike. And Kirk is an author, and his book is going to be the topic of the next four shows, and the book is titled, What is Truth? Kirk, you make a couple of very, very bold claims in your book. And I'm going to read to the uh, listening audience some of the stuff that you wrote. And it's printed on the back side of your cover of your book. Okay. And it says this. Despite the fact that our modern mass media makes it appear that atheism and secularism are on the rise in the world, in fact, the opposite tr- is true. Despite the fact that our media constantly insists that Darwinism and evolution have been proven to be true, in fact, the scientific evidence is growing day by day that this is not true. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that our media continually highlights the idea that the Bible is an outmoded book full of myths and fairy tales, in fact, historical and archaeological research is revealing that the biblical manuscripts are exactingly accurate in every detail. Yep. These are some very, very bold claims, and if you're listening for the very first time, you are going to get answers to many of these bold assertions and the, the facts as to why these claims are actually true. Sounds like a stretch, Kirk, but I believe with all my heart and mind that if a listener listens to at least the next four radio programs and checks out your book, that they're going to come away convinced that things, these things are in fact true. Well, that was the reason that I wrote it. Okay. One uh, brief uh, sidebar before we get into uh, Kirk Hastings' book. Um, Keith Kendricks, our co-host, is in Minneapolis-St. Paul this week uh, learning about pacemakers, getting updated and upgraded, and that way he can bring you the very, very best technology should you, in fact, ever need a pacemaker. So, Keith, hurry back and uh, stay healthy out there, and uh, we look forward to hearing you again on the radio show. Uh, we had a, uh, an email question uh, this past week, and I wanted to address that uh, briefly if I can. It's, it's difficult at best because the questions that were raised by PW were uh, very deep indeed. In fact, we've um, dedicated several shows to her questions, and one of the questions was about the resurrection. And, of course, the linchpin of Christianity is the resurrection of Christ as the risen Savior. If you look at the historical evidence— If, in fact, Jesus was who he said he was, and he, in fact, was raised from the dead, the historical evidence would look a certain way. Mm -hmm. If he was not risen again, and if he truly died, and they actually recovered a body, 
uh, then the historical facts would have looked another way. And the right. fact of the matter is, there was no body ever recovered, okay? And there were many eyewitnesses who uh, saw the risen Christ. And the fact of the matter is, that is what the historical evidences suggest. And I'm talking about evidences that are outside of the Bible. If you've never checked out our show before, you can on previous uh, broadcasts. In fact, we have a complete archives of uh, previous shows. Now, the resurrection shows are archived um, under iTunes. You can check out the podcasts under Evidence for Faith, or you can go to our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com, and check out the following episodes for the resurrection. We've devoted at least three hours to this topic, including uh, an interview with an expert on the topic. The show dates are 11 and 6 um, Now, the other question that was raised by uh, PW in her email, and by the way, folks, you can email us questions. You can email us at evidenceforfaith.com, or you can call us on the show at uh, 398-1020. Uh, PW raised uh, another uh, question about the, the problem of evil, and typically the problem of evil and suffering uh, are taken care of um, pretty much during the same um, answer uh, type thing. And yes, indeed, there is evil. I've always said that if you look at tonight's news at, at 6 o'clock and you watch the news for an hour, you'll see how much evil there is in the world, mm -hmm. not only on the national news or the local news, but also in the world news. Mm -hmm. uh, there's bad stuff happening all the time. Um, and the reason being is that um, I think men, by and large, have an evil heart. Yes, there are a lot of good people, but the evil tendencies can certainly outweigh the good. And what we see, uh, as a matter of fact, is evil, which leads to suffering because there are always victims. Of and course, we just did a couple of programs on that very topic a few weeks ago. Indeed, we did. In fact, you can check those podcasts out. They're dated 11908-711-2010, as well as 718-2010. Um, you know, there, there's evil in the world. There's suffering in the world. Death and dying happen as a, as within the context of life itself. I'm mm -hmm. a physician. I see it all the time. Right. People get sick and die, and it's, and it's, it's really... A difficult, difficult thing to take um, when it's somebody who's very young, whether it's a newborn baby or, or a young teenager who gets critically ill and dies, or the tragedy of a motorcycle accident or a car accident. Mm -hmm. So why do these things happen? They do happen. It's a consequence of being alive. Uh, I know that's not a, a very good answer, but we have a, a faith that tells us that we are not of this world, but that we will be of another world uh, eventually. So it's not, it's not that we don't uh, accept evil. Evil happens. We know that. Even but the Bible doesn't skirt around that issue. It mentions it again and again. It, it, it admits the reality of evil in the world. That is correct. So I would, I would suggest that um, everybody check out those two um, or three um, different podcasts that I alluded to uh, earlier. Um, and the last, the last thing that you brought up, which is a very, very um, problematic thing, is the problem of con men in the church. And <laughs> we all know about uh, the con men who have made headline news in the last 10 years. And it's yeah. sad and it's unfortunate. Um, unfortunately, greed takes over. And uh, the good news of the Bible and the gospel of the Bible are 
are um, a secondary gain for these people, and they use it uh, to further their own uh, enrichment, and it's sad. Uh, but there are many, many, many good people in the church, people that would do anything for you, give their the shirt off their back, um, take care of you, help you, uh, help you with uh, finances, and so forth. So it's really, really tragic when somebody from a very, very prominent uh, um, point of view in, 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 in the church uh, falls uh, from grace, so to speak. But, there are but all that really shows is that anyone is really capable of falling short of the standards that God sets for us. And Even men of the church can do it because all humans are humans. fallen according to the Bible. That is correct. Yep. So it's it's tragic and sad, but it does indeed happen. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I also wanted to uh, point out in this in the context that we just talked about, Kirk, uh, is suicide bombers. You know, there you have men of faith who are causing great evil and causing tragedy and suffer, uh, suffering and so forth. And one of the, the distinctions that I wanted to make was that um, suicide bombers kill themselves in the name of faith. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, when a Christian gets martyred, they're killed because of their faith. These are very, very, very different contexts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when Christian missionaries are killed, they're killed because of their faith, not because they're trying to do harm to people, but because they're trying to bring the good news and the gospel mm -hmm. to a people group that haven't heard the good news before. So it's a, it's a very interesting uh, distinction to be made. You are listening to Evidence for Faith, and today with us is Kirk Hastings, author of What is Truth? And we're going to be exploring that book in detail over the next four sessions. We anticipate that we're going to do the first two shows strictly on science and archaeology and what does the scientific record show and what does the archaeological record show relative to our faith. Does it support evolution? Does it support creationism? And we're going to go through a whole lot of stuff along those lines. And I love this stuff, Kirk. Your book is a very easy read. It's very informative. I love the fact that you have a very, very extensive bibliography at the back of your book. And you also mm -hmm. have a glossary of terms at the back of your book. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of terms that we may be using that may be foreign to some people. Or they may be terms that you thought you knew of but didn't. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I'm a lay person myself, and I wrote this book for lay people to read, not for rocket scientists or, you know, high-minded theologians or whatever. I wanted to make this stuff understandable to the average person excellent. because I'm an average person, and I came across this information because I took the time to look for it. And my contention is that if you take the time to search out the evidence, pro and con, for a lot of these things, you'll be able to find some of the answers to these things, too. Okay. Why did you call it What is Truth? This is the title of your book, and it's a very, very, very famous quotation. Sure. Uh, well, obviously, um, it's based on a verse in the New Testament. When Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate is basically grilling him and saying, you know, who are you? What did you do? Why are you here? Why did they bring you in front of me? And Jesus just basically stood there and didn't give him too many answers. And finally, at one point, he, Jesus said that I came to testify of the truth. That was my purpose. And Pilate's response to him was, well, what is truth? And then and he walked away. He walked away from Christ. 
and basically sentence him to die. He, it was really a rhetorical question by Pilate. He really mm-hmm. didn't expect an answer to it. And really, a lot of people today are still asking the same question. Well, what is truth? Or is there such a thing as truth? Or if there is, how can we know what it is? Mm-hmm. So to me, this is still a very uh, um, popular question today people are still asking it thousands of years later it's a very very germane truth and if if folks if you the listening audience are searching for that truth and i'm hoping that uh our email questioner uh, pw is listening i think this would be a very very excellent read for somebody who is searching for those answers and uh, why is it that we come up with a a living faith and a strong faith a grounded faith that's supported not only by the history and the archaeology that goes into this publication, but also by the scientific evidence. In fact, each year, more and more scientific evidence come out comes out that shows that evolution is an improbability. Okay. Yes. And we're going to be going through a lot of a that. lot that a lot of it you don't hear about in the major media because this is not a popular subject for them, and they don't really deal with it very often. That's correct. So, if you want to really know what the latest discoveries are. You can't just listen to the nightly news on the networks and expect to get it there. You have to search out uh, literature, books, whatever, by experts in their field and find out what they're saying about what's being discovered. Well, in in your own search for truth, Kirk, and I I loved your introduction uh, because you started it out with an anonymous quote, and it says this, Truth is, period, lies have to be invented so the fact yes. of the matter is truth is truth the rest of it is is bunk that was created for deception believe it or not i saw that quote not too long ago on a sign in front of a church and i thought that was really good so i incorporated it into my book yeah well t- tell us about your search in the very beginning What were you searching for, or how did the search find you? Well, to tell you the truth, up until I was in my mid-20s, I really wasn't searching for anything. I was just basically uh, wrapped up in the business of growing up and trying to understand how to get along in the world and whatever, and I really wasn't, I hadn't grown up with any kind of a religious upbringing from my parents, Uh, So I really didn't have any background in that type of thing and really wasn't that interested in it. I figured, you know, there's a lot of different religions in the world. Everybody says that theirs is the right one, and there probably isn't any way to tell the difference between any of them. So I really didn't bother with them for the most part. Would you describe yourself as an atheist or an agnostic growing up? No, I, I believe that there was a God somewhere, but I believed that it was too complex a subject for us to really be able to figure out as humans who who he probably really is, mm-hmm. you know, that he's so far above us that, you know, we can't comprehend him anyway, so why bother to try to understand him? Mm-hmm. I just had this vague belief that he's out there somewhere, but as far as the religions of the world, you know, some of them may be true, some of them may not be true. There may be mixes of truth and error in them, but I'll never be able to figure out which is which. So I really didn't bother to try. And they all can't be true. Um, that, yeah, but I never even went that far mm-hmm. to think about that. You know, I, I really didn't know much about religion in general because I was never taught it growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, I never went to church growing up because my father was basically an atheist and he didn't really want his children to go to church. And 
I wasn't antagonistic toward religion. I just was totally ignorant of it and really had no interest in it until when I got into my mid 20s. And, you know, at that age, you start naturally asking questions like, well, you know, how did I get here? Where did I come from? Mm. What am I here for? Do I have a purpose? Do I just spin my wheels until I die and then I'm gone? Or, you know, what is it all about? You start asking those kind of questions and they don't teach you the answers to those kind of questions in school when you're growing up. Yeah, and a couple of things had happened to you earlier on. You know, the thing that intrigued me about your past, my past, Kirk, is that we ran parallel courses. Really? My parents split up when I was seven. Your parents split up when you were 13. Right. Your mom died when she was 16 suddenly. When my, I was 16. And my mom. She was only 46, yes. Right, and my mom died when I was 18 rather suddenly. You know, right. With, within the month of the diagnosis, in fact, both. Mine was within a couple of months. And both had tumors, too. So we ran very parallel tracks. Wow. So, Interesting. So, you know, our hearts were broken at a very young age. Right. And uh, those lead us to look for those answers, I believe. It really makes you wonder, what is it all about? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is life about? What is death about? Is there anything afterwards? Is there any justice mm-hmm. in the universe, mm-hmm. even when there doesn't look like there is? Y- you just start wondering whether there really are any answers to these questions. And if there is, how do I find them? Yeah. So who started giving you all these questions? How'd that happen? Um, I just kind of... They just naturally came along. I mean, um, <laughs> um, you know, you, you just, I came into contact with some people from Campus Crusade for Christ, mm. which is a Christian organization. Um, and they started asking me things like, have you ever read the Bible? You know, and my answer was, well, no. Um, you know, just what do right, you know about Jesus Christ? And right out of the blue. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, well, not much. He was a founder of one of the world's religions. I don't really know that much about him, you know, and they're asking me these questions and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I never really thought about these things before. And I guess really being asked those questions is what started me thinking, well, if I started studying what the what the different major religions of the world are based on, could I maybe figure out which one makes more sense than any of the others, if any of them do? Or maybe I might decide to reject all of them, but I felt it was time to start trying to find out some of this information, understanding what people believe and why they believe it and where the religions came from and how they formed over the years and who their founders were, and try to figure out if there was anything in there I could use. And I, I found it interesting, too, because when you started the uh, the interview with the Campus Crusade for Christ, you, you hit them with a barrage of questions, and I'm going to uh, paraphrase sure from your did. book. I'm going to paraphrase <laughs> from your book, Kirk, because I, I was intrigued by it all, because, because these were all the same questions that I had as well. And I really? Had an, I had an encounter my, my freshman year at the University of Pennsylvania with Campus Crusade for Christ. Really? And uh, these questions uh, are as follows. How do we know if God really exists or not? Okay? And if he does... That's a pretty basic question. (laughs) And if he does, how can we know what he's like or whether he cares for us or not? Sure. There are lots of different religions in the world, and I think there's over 300 at last count. How can we know which one is true? Right. Or if any of them are true? Right. Okay? And, of course, you were just getting warmed up, and then you whacked these people with... (laughs) Well, what about science? Scientists say that everything evolved from the basic chemicals 
billions of years ago, and that there's no proof that God had anything to do with it anyway. And how do we know that Jesus was who he said he was? How do we know that the Bible is accurate? Why are there so many different religions in the world? And what about all the different church denominations? And you went on and on and on. And are you telling me that the natives in Africa are doomed to hell because they never <laughs> read the Bible or came in contact with a missionary? Sure. And so it just, it just went on and on and on. And you spent, I kept this guy busy for five hours one afternoon. He expected like a one-hour lunch, uh-huh. and I kept him busy all afternoon with questions. So what happened? Um, to, to give you the short answer, he answered all my questions. And at the end of the five hours, I was like, well, okay, most of what you just told me makes some kind of sense. And I ran out of questions. <laughs> And I mean, I wasn't trying to put him on the spot with these questions or anything or trying to trap him or anything. They were all honest questions that I wanted answers to. Sure. These are bona fide questions. Sure. And I would remind everybody that you are listening to Evidence for Faith. And if you do have a burning question, you you can call us at 398-1020 or you can email us at evidenceforfaith.com. But anyway, we're talking with Kirk Hastings today, author of What is Truth? And it's an excellent read. It's written uh, in a language that's very easy to understand. Excellent bibliography, excellent glossary. Uh, It has all of the basic truths in it that you need to make a critical analysis of what's happening in today's world when it comes to science and truth and religion and truth. And I deliberately made the bibliography in the back as complete as I could so that if people want to continue to read more in depth about any of the subjects I teach, I, you know, touch on in my book, that they could know where to look for more information. And there's tons of good books out there. But the, the thing I like the most about your read, Kirk, is that it's easy to read and it's logical, it's rational, and it just makes a whole lot of sense. And you, you spend some time on three ways to discern what is real. And it's all about logic, rational evidences, and proof. And I love that about this book. That's where I've always kind of come from, uh, personally. You know, even in my early 20s, I kind of uh, came to that conclusion that, you know, there's a lot of opinions and viewpoints out there. But... How do we tell which opinions have weight to them and which ones don't? And I came back to these three basic methods that I decided for myself were a way of being able to separate what made sense and what didn't. And the three ways are basically evidence. You study the evidence, pro and con, you know, not just on one side, but on both sides to see which ones makes more sense. You use logic to put that evidence together in a reasonable form so that it makes some sense. And then probability, that's not as much of, of a, uh, a method as the other two, but, you know, probability has something to do with it, too, that um, some things are just, you know, not too much chance that they're true. Yeah, one... And one. There, there are actually professional... Um, statisticians who you know are scientists and sit down and they they figure out the mathematical odds of whether this could be so or this is not so and you can't always 100 percent trust in that because sometimes they're wrong but it gives you a starting point as to you know what seems to make more sense than something else and you can use that as a basis 
Yeah, one, one of the things that I wanted to bring up is that early on, you know, if you admitted uh, to an intellectual that you were a Christian, they had an immediate uh, gut feeling that you had checked your brains at the door. Well, that's what I used to think. Well, me too. Up until my mid-20s, I figured anybody that was religious was gullible. a little... Gullible. Yeah, a little naive or, you know, a little um, insecure and they needed something, a crutch to lean on or, you know, they were whatever. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't have a very good viewpoint of religious people. And when these campus crusaders started talking to me, I was looking at them with a little bit of a crooked eye, like, you know, where are you coming from? Are you a little crazy or what are you? Right. And I was surprised to find out that they were very normal, very rational, very normal people. Well, the bottom line is that they had discernment. They could tell you what was real and what was not, what was true and what was not. But the thing that I love about your book is that you go into an intellectual rationalization process. You look at both the right. evidence for and against, and you look at both sides of the coin. And that's basically what they were telling me. Mm -hmm. They told me. You know, if you want to know some things, well, check it out. Don't just take my word or what I'm telling you about it. Go check the evidence out or whatever and figure this out for yourself. They weren't trying to force their viewpoint on me. They were really trying to get me to start thinking about this, mm -hmm. which is what I did. And one of the things that we're going to be going through as we uh, dissect your book is that we're going to look at the facts, okay, that are objective and verifiable and are acceptable facts within the body of scientific Sure. Evidences. They're, they're basically facts that most people could look at and say, sure, that, that's obvious that that's true. Right. And you use logic in coming to your conclusions uh, because they're all based on reason and they're based on evidences, uh, the facts, and also the probability and the statistics, which we'll get into when it comes to uh, accepting certain facts and certain hypotheses and theories. And we're also going to define the difference between law and theory, which is very, very yes. important. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, let, why don't we get into some of the science, Kirk? Let's let's talk about the origins of life. There's okay. basically two origins. There, you know, you're, right. you're either in one camp or you're in the other. Well, uh, that's that's the basic question. I think that you have to start with is where did we come from? <laughs> exactly. And uh, you spend a lot of time uh, differentiating between myth and fable and folklore, and truth. And there is a difference between these things. There are um, official definitions of these things that put something into either one category or the other. It's, it's not just a willy-nilly thing like, well, I think this is superstition, and I think this is religion, and I think this is myth, and I think that's legend. It's, it's not that simple. There's really a process that uh, scientists and official people go through to put things in either one category or the other in these things. And I love the fact that you just boiled it all down, that the two origins of life are either creation, supernatural creation, right. or spontaneous generation from the prebiotic soup or the primordial soup, whatever you want to right. call it, the chemical soup. And those two options I got from scientists. That's correct. Um, I have a quote in my book in the chapter where I deal with this of a scientist. His name is George Wald. He wrote in Scientific American magazine, um, I think back in the 1960s, he said, when it comes to the origin of life, there are only two possibilities. And by that he means there's only two possibilities that 
rational people I've ever accepted. And those two possibilities, he says, are either creation or spontaneous generation. And he says there is no third way. We don't even have a concept of a third way that things came into being. It had to be either one way or the other. Well, I believe that Francis Crick uh, postulated the third way, but it, he was laughed out of his scientific existence. Uh, his theory of panspermia, where okay. an outer spaceship came in and, and dropped its sperm. Aliens its from other planets exactly. started us, but, seeded but, the life here. Exactly. But then the obvious question is, where did the aliens come That's from? That's exactly correct. It begs that question. You still end up with back at the same point That's if correct. you take it back far enough. So that really isn't an answer to the question. It just puts the question off a little longer. <laughs> well, let's see. You're listening to uh, Kirk Hastings. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. Our co-host, Keith Kendricks, could not be with us today. Uh, he's getting uh, more scientific uh, training in uh, pacemaker technology, and we'll be back uh, in the next um, uh, couple of weeks to uh, join us in this discussion on What is Truth, written by author Kirk Hastings. Uh, but anyway, you spend a lot of time on um, myth and fable, and you go through the Greek gods and, and, and so mm -hmm. forth, and the Roman gods, and uh, tell us why that's germane to this uh, subject matter. Well, I just gave a little introductory chapter in the first part of my book on religious thought through the centuries. What did people, what have people over the centuries um, come up with as far as the answer to these questions of is there a God, where did we come from, where did the world come from, and just to give a little historical background, I go through some of the ideas that the ancient Egyptians thought as far as, you know, what, who or what created the world, where did we come from, uh, what the ancient Greeks thought about it, what the ancient Romans thought about it, and up basically to the present day and until you finally came to Moses who wrote a, who wrote about his encounter with the living God the God of the Hebrews yes Moses was a little bit of a different situation than what had come before him the stories of for instance the Norse gods or the Roman gods or the Greek gods or the Egyptian gods were all based on um, different people coming up with these stories basically out of their imaginations. Well, we think that maybe this is how it happened or, you know, this is where things came from or whatever. But here was a guy who actually claimed that the God who created the entire universe spoke directly to him and appeared to him and told him, this is how I started it all. Now, that had never been done before no one had ever interviewed zeus or jupiter or you know isis or whatever about how did you create the world yeah, <laughs> but here was a guy who said the actual god who did it spoke to me and told me how he did it mm. that was something different and of course he wrote the pentateuch which are the first uh, five books of the uh, hebrew bible as well as the uh, christian bible right uh and then we get into uh which i find very fascinating because you give a timeline of, of this thought process leading us up to uh, the scientific inquiry. Right. Uh, we go through the Renaissance, which went from the 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. Right. Renaissance literally meaning rebirth. Right. And then the Enlightenment, or right. the time where people's minds were illuminated, and they started... Supposedly. At, supposedly asking scientific questions and pursuing the scientific thought and endeavors and coming up with theories, and, and the list goes on and on as far as the uh, scientists... 
that were involved, like Isaac Newton and so forth. Mm-hmm. But uh, these were the men of the Enlightenment. And uh, When these people really started practicing a scientific view of the world, mm-hmm. they started to question everything that had come before. Um, all the ideas about supernaturalism or um, gods or superior beings or supernatural creation or whatever, they started to question all that and say, well, what if there's a more natural explanation for all these things that really doesn't depend on any invisible supernatural being. And I I love the fact that on page 19 of your book you talk about the irony of this enlightenment and of the enlightened mind Mm -hmm. and how they started to drift away from the uh, rational creator. You know, because when you look at the rational God of the universe, the rational creator, these enlightened people started to drift away and, uh, you know, with their math and their science, they could now predict and define the physical laws of the universe. Sure. And, uh, and they knew that spirits didn't cause a lot of this stuff. There were natural reasons for why things happen the way they do. Right. And they didn't need God or religion then to explain the universe because they could explain it with math and science. They thought they could. And so consequently, atheism was born and really was prompted into high gear by the publication in 1859 on the origin of the species written by Charles Darwin. Right. Really, most people probably don't realize that atheism was not a widespread uh, thought process until at least medieval times and more recently probably during the age of the Enlightenment where they started to question uh, documents like the Bible that had always been accepted as being real history they started to question it and say well what if this isn't real history well really up until then we have to throw it all out and we have to start all over again and really up until 1859 all of the universities whether it was the ivy league institutions in this country or oxford and cambridge in in england they were all based on theology schools sure and so they were all based on the bible as a source of truth and as a source of accurate history okay uh, our uh um, programmer tells me that we do have a caller. Hello, caller, if you can identify yourself and give us your question. Um, my name is Sarah. Hi, Sarah. And I have a question or two and a comment. In terms of um, the person you're speaking about questioning good and so forth. Yes, question on good and evil. I question that also myself because it seems only... Bad things happen to good people. There's a saying, um, the good die young and so forth. And I've always wondered, um, you know, how good of a God could allow such horrible things to happen, yet there's individuals, just for example, happened in Summers Point, a man raped a woman 89 years old. I mean, how could that be allowed to a person almost 90 years old? I mean, why couldn't God say, no, don't let this happen. Let this person change his thought of mind and just go home to bed. Sarah, that's an excellent question, and we have fielded uh, that same question from you on previous shows. Uh, Let me just say this. Good and bad things happen to both good and bad people. Uh, I'm sure that this lady was a a good-hearted woman, uh, probably a great-grandmother, given her age. And certainly it's a tragedy as to what happened, because an evil man did an evil thing. Um, 
the, the world is full of evil. If you look at uh, the news broadcast tonight between 6 and 7, uh, I call it Satan's Variety Hour because it's who raped who, who burned down somebody's house, who robbed who, who shot who. Uh, it's, the, the news is full of that. And this is a lot of evil, rotten stuff that happens to good people. But a lot of evil, rotten stuff happens to bad people because they eventually get burned because of the lifestyle that they live. Now remember that the prince of the world rules the air of this world. He's in charge. Um, God is almighty and all-powerful and all-knowing, but he's not going to necessarily intervene uh, in every uh, situation such as that. It's unfortunate, and I don't have that uh, specific answer for that specific lady as to why it happened, but you don't know. It may be in her... her, desperate hour when this wicked evil thing was happening to her she might have been sharing the love of christ with this man we don't know that but i would hope that that's the case okay uh, and one last thing in terms you're talking about the enlightenment and um two proven theories and one got laughed off you know by scientists well let's say the theory that uh, was not accepted is actual fact which I mean, theory, Sarah, are you talking about? You had mentioned that someone had had a theory or thought of how creation and and um, the other scientists did not accept it. Right. Because uh, something about space aliens or something, they didn't have the facts together. Oh, yeah, that was promoted by um, uh, Crick, who was the co-discoverer of DNA well, in 1954. Well, let's say what he said is actual fact, but he did not put his thoughts together. For example, it says in the beginning God created heaven and earth. Who's to say that's correct? Or when you look at um, pictures of Jesus, he's, this is not racial or anything. It's a white male with blue eyes, long hair. Who's to say you, you he's You know what, not Sarah? I absolutely and positively agree with you. Another color or hair. The, the fact of the matter is, if you, if you look at Christ's origins in current-day Palestine, he would have been dark-complected, olive-complected. We don't know if he had straight hair, curly hair, and I doubt very much that he had blue eyes. Well, that's uh, the this perception. Most pictures you see, you know, that's how he right. depicted. Right. Well, no, the fact of the matter is uh, nobody knows what Jesus looked like. There is no recorded image of Jesus. And, and we there are that. actually people in parts of the world that picture him as as black and dark-skinned mm-hmm. and Middle Eastern-looking, too. There are different depictions of him, right. not just one. Well, thank you, Sarah. We appreciate your uh, your phone call. But I'd, I'd like to mention one thing, too, though, that we had dealt with this idea of evil in the world for a couple of programs, which are available on the Evidence for Faith website, if anybody would like to listen to them. And the basic conclusion we came to as to why evil exists in the world is because God has allowed us to have human free will, which means he gave us the freedom to choose to do right, which is what he wants us to do, but at the same time we have the freedom to choose wrong. And most of the evil and the suffering in the world comes from people choosing to do wrong. And the reason that God doesn't always necessarily come in and stop us from doing that all the time is because it's his desire that we have this freedom to choose one or the other. And the Bible admits that, that many people will choose to do wrong, but it does reassure us that uh, no one will get away with anything. Mm-hmm. God is, is, sees everything. He knows everything that's going on, and the evil that's happening in the world will all be uh, paid for 
either in this lifetime or afterwards. So w that's a, a small source of comfort to us when things like, you know, this woman being raped or whatever, you know, that's a terrible thing. But the person that did this will pay for it one way or the other eventually. Well, no God. one gets away with anything that they do wrong. Yeah, God is just. God gives us the free will to choose right or wrong, but he's promised us that if you choose wrong, there will be consequences for it, and you won't get away with it in the end. Well, anyway, getting back to the, uh, the science at hand, uh, there are two choices that we have, Kirk. Uh, we have the choice of naturalism, which involves organic evolution, um, and neo-Darwinism. Which basically says that life came from non-living chemicals. Right. Or we have supernatural creation and intelligent design. Right. So those are the two choices, and you can't have both. No. They're not. These are opposite ends of the pole. They're not compatible ideas with each other. Right. So anyway, you, you get into the universe and the existence of the universe. And the scientists that started to elucidate the fact that uh, Darwinism and Neo-Darwinism and naturalism weren't necessarily giving us the correct answers, I think it all started really around the turn of the century, 1905, with uh, um, Albert Einstein. In okay. his, you know, he started to publish uh, his, his theory on uh, general uh, relatively relativity as well as special relativity. Right. In uh, 1905 and 1915, he uh, uh, published those uh, theories. And his mathematical calculations showed that the universe was expanding. And by deduction, he could prove that the universe had a beginning and that it wasn't always there forever. Right. Because the naturalists... The universe is not infinite. That, right. The naturalists have always held on to the view that the universe has always been there for billions and billions and billions of years. Uh, but mathematically... Well, that's a convenient way of leaving God out of the question. If the universe has always been here, you don't have to deal with the question of a God creating it or not. Right. But unfortunately, that viewpoint of the universe always having existed does not hold up scientifically. And Einstein was one of the first to prove that. Right. And then Hubble comes along, famous for the Hubble telescope. And right. he, his observations also confirmed yep. that the universe was expanding. Okay. Right. And that it must have had a beginning point at some time in the past. And then some other things happened in the scientific world that also suggested that uh, naturalism was actually leaning on the wrong uh, uh, footstool, if you will. Eddington applied the laws of thermodynamics mm -hmm. to his scientific inquiries, specifically the first and second laws. Kirk, could you right. elucidate those, please, for the listening audience? Sure. Um, well, basically, these laws tell us two things. They tell us, first of all, that um, disorder doesn't create order that the universe is slowly winding down. Mm -hmm. uh, we could go into a lot of the scientific, you know, ins and outs of this, but basically what it's saying is that all heat in the energy, uh, heat in the universe is cooling off. All energy is being used up, and there's going to come a point somewhere where all the heat will be gone and all the energy will be gone. It's it's on a downward um spiral if you will so what you're saying is that there had to have a beginning because the universe at one time was wound up yes now it's slowly unwinding which is entropy yes all the laws that we know of science say that if you have heat or energy it has to start somewhere and then 
it slowly dissipates. So the fact that all of the heat and energy in our universe is slowly dissipating is basically proof that at one time that heat was, you know, perfectly hot or whatever you want to call it, or the energy was complete. It had to have a starting point somewhere before it started to wear out. Yeah, I'm going to take another stab at this, Kurt. Kirk. The first law of thermodynamics basically says that the amount of matter and energy in the universe remains constant. Now, I don't yes. want to confuse anybody on that. What that means is that matter can be produ can be converted into energy and that that energy and dissipation of that energy creates heat. Right. And that's the part that's unwinding. Okay? Uh, the second law of thermodynamics has to do with random disorder. Okay, you start at a higher level of organization, right, and then it goes or it unwinds to a lesser degree of organization, right. Okay, so that's the second law of uh, thermodynamics, classically called entropy. Now, this is easy to prove. If you don't do anything in your house for a month, watch how messy it gets. It doesn't get more ordered. The longer you leave it alone, it gets more messed up. <laughs> right. It takes energy to keep everything right, to keep the dust from accumulating, to keep the clothes right. from accumulating on the floor. Keep, uh, <laughs> I'll have to tell Keith that because that's his problem or Nancy's problem. But anyway, uh, the point is, is that uh, entropy happens because it's a law. Things go to a random state. Yes. Better A better analogy and using chemicals, if you will, or a chemical reaction, if I dumped a bottle of alcohol on this table, Okay, I come from a bottle, a liquid alcohol, that evaporates. Everybody knows the smell of alcohol. Mm -hmm. Those molecules dissipate in a process called evaporization. Right. Evaporation, rather. And we can smell it, and the alcohol eventually dissipates. But the right. alcohol molecules are still in the air. Right. Okay. They're just no longer in a form that you can drink them. <laughs> now, what I can't do is take that air and bring it back into the bottle and make alcohol. Right. Okay. I would actually have to go to, let's say, a corn mash, boil it down, distill it, get the alcohol out of the distillate, and bottle that, that vapor that's coming off the pot of soup. It's the result of human intelligence and energy that creates the alcohol to begin with, that puts all the pieces together to make it. Right. And it takes a lot of heat, and it takes matter to do that. Right. To make one bottle of alcohol. Sure. But anyway, those those are the, the two laws of uh, thermodynamics the uh, first and second laws, and they actually show that the, the universe is unwinding and by default, basically, that it was wound up at one point in time where it had a beginning. Sure. Okay. And it also says that uh, neither matter and energy can be created or destroyed. Right. So what does that tell you? If, it, if the scientific law is saying that new energy and new matter just popping out of nowhere is impossible, then you're still left with the question, where did the universe come from in the beginning then? Mm -hmm. And the only answer is a higher supernatural power that had an intelligent brain to put all these pieces together must have done it. There's no other explanation. It couldn't have happened on its own. Mm. You know, the interesting thing is, and this is a, a perfect lead into the next discussion about evolution and Darwinism, is that in order for Darwinian evolution to happen, it would fly in the face of and go against the second law of thermodynamics. Cause you it actually, actually goes against both of them when you take it back far enough. Right, but you would have to go from a lesser life form to a more complex life form against all of the laws of thermodynamics. Right. Okay, which doesn't sit well with me, and it was one of those convincing arguments for me 
that led me to a faith? Well, I like to say that I like to put the second law in the context of um, disorder cannot create order. Order does not come out of disorder, which is basically what evolution is telling us. It's telling us that everything was disordered to begin with and is somehow putting itself together into a more orderly, more complex form as we go along. And yet everything we know in the natural world that we see argues against that. Right. And, you know, from a, a, a physician's perspective, my own perspective as a scientist and a, as an internist, I look at uh, the mutations okay, mm -hmm. which are espoused by the Darwinists as having these properties to make for the advancement of a species or a creature. Okay. Right. Which basically are biological mistakes. Which, in my field, when I look at mutations, mm -hmm. they cause disease death and deformity which goes right. along with the second law of thermodynamics right it doesn't create something better or good no it creates a big problem unfortunately like the uh entertaining science fiction stories we like to read if you have a mutation you don't end up with a superman you end up with a deformed human being who more than likely will die sooner because of this deformity that's correct. that's the reality of of the biological laws of the universe well, Kirk, the next five minutes, we only have five minutes, believe it or not, for this show. That's how quickly the time has gone. I'd like to differentiate between the two different types of evolution. Yes. Okay, because this is a very, very critical piece of information that the media and mainstream scientists usually skirt around. Yes. Because they're not giving you the full truth when it comes to evolution and the theory of evolution. They like to use the word evolution in a very broad sense. Very loosely. Right. Mm -hmm. But actually, when you get down to the scientific definition of evolution, there really are two kinds of evolution, as scientists define it. One is microevolution, which is small changes. Like, for instance, um, there was a story in the paper recently about some kind of... Um, virus or something that was attacking some of the crops in the Midwest and they came up with some kind of a uh, spray or something to do away with this and the virus mutated so that it was now not affected by the spray and they say well that's an example of evolution it evolved itself in order to survive but the problem is that the virus is still a virus it didn't change into something else. What evolutionists are trying to tell us happened in the past is what actually is called macroevolution, which states the idea that at one species of living creature can change into an entirely different species. Now that has never been proven scientifically. We have no evidence whatsoever of any animal, human being, whatever, living creature spontaneously changing into another species. Okay. You can have an, a woolly mammoth that has hair to protect it from the Arctic cold, and maybe somewhere down the line you might end up with an elephant that doesn't have it because it lives in a warm climate and doesn't need it anymore, but they're still elephants. They don't change into a zebra or a giraffe or a lion. That's what macroevolution macro is trying to tell us, that a... One-celled creature could change into a fish. A fish could change into an amphibian. An amphibian could change into a dinosaur. A dinosaur could change into a mammal. A mammal could change into a man. 
and somewhere in there the bird is i think between the the reptile and the mammal yes but the point is is that microevolution is something that all of us accept this yes. is proven okay sure. even even creation scientists myself included believe that microevolution oh happens. yeah it's it's so obvious that you can't deny it there okay. are small changes within species that happen all the time but the thing that's been proven in the last 10 years from a dna point of view is that these small changes are actually genetically pre-programmed so that the species can kick into gear those other options right in order to adapt right the physical environment the potential is there for it to begin with that's correct and so hence you have that propagation of the species in a more hardy form but it was already right. pre-programmed in the very beginning to have that information uh, interestingly charles darwin wrote this and i'm, and I'm going to quote this from charles darwin i am quite conscious that my speculations run beyond the bounds of true science and he was speculating he about was admitting basically that the idea of one species changing into another is not really scientifically provable. Right. So we all agree that microevolutionary change is observable, and it's fact. Right. What's not been proven, however, and I doubt very ever will be proven, is that macroevolution exists. Because now, this is what the people on TV and whatever, they lump all this together into one thing, and they call it evolution. Right. They try to say that a virus mutating a protection against a certain kind of spray is the same thing as an elephant changing itself into a lion, and that's not the same thing at all. Right. But anyway, it's, it's very problematic from a, uh, an evolutionary scientist's point of view that all plants and animals evolve by random, undirected chance from an original cell or life mm -hmm. uh, and then differentiated uh, into a different life form. Yep. It's, it's never been proven. No. The process, we're still looking for the missing link. The process would it's still missing. <laughs> I know we're going to get into that once we get into the archaeology. Uh, I'm sorry, into the um, um, the you know the the paleontology and so right. forth. Uh, the process would require billions and billions of years, if I can quote Carl Sagan uh, and Dr. Richard Dawkins, who's a uh, very very Oxford zoologist and probably the most vocal proponent of uh, macroevolution and defender of their faith, that is, atheism, uh, he asserts this, given infinite time or infinite opportunities, anything is possible. You know, that statement to me is almost mythical. You know, it's the That union. statement is true if we had infinite time to deal with, which well, science says we don't. The, the mythical part of it, in my estimation, is that it's the union of Mother Earth, Goddess, and Father Time. Okay. Okay. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis, and with me is Kirk Hastings, author of What is Truth. Join us again next week for further discussion, and we're going to get more into the science uh, behind creation science. And remember, being a Christian is true, and that is the best reason for being a Christian. And it's What is Truth. We are exploring it every day. I can see